great singing. Welcome, Cactus and Northridge and Chapel. I, I, I want to say, as we are, you know, inaugurating our 8 a.m. service this weekend here, that, and I obviously am not going to say this at the other two services, if I was you, if I was in your shoes, meaning not employed by this place, but an average Joe or Mary in this church, I'd be at this service. I'm telling you, I would. I, I would. You can clap at that. <clears throat> I would be an eight o'clock a.m. guy because I get up early and I like to get going to my day. I do my best work in the morning. Anybody who knows me knows that. And so I would just relish the fact of being here at 8 a.m. worshiping God. So I also want to say thank you to all of you here and at Cactus, Northridge, and Chapel, obviously those of you online, because as we also... You know, as I said last week, worship in the bookends, whether now at 8 or at 11.30, it helps the congestion <clears throat> that we're anticipating at 9.45. So thank you for prioritizing uh, the 8 o'clock service here. It's kind of a big day for our church, uh, our, our new vision that we've entitled Pull Together to Go Further uh, essentially begins today. It's an intergenerational push uh, that we're doing at our church to set the tone for the next 10 years of ministry here in the valley as we merge generations together to not be just multi-generational but intergenerational in the way that we function as a church. So today is the day that we essentially are bringing together the venue and the Shea Worship Center here and then Saturday night into Sunday morning on all campuses and can't thank you guys enough for uh, seeing and hearing God's vision with me and us and, uh, and seeing what he will do with this. It's eminently biblical. It's thoroughly biblical. And uh, I, I can't wait to see how God uses us as we move into uncharted territory. So we got a lot of work to do uh, in the Word today. I <clears throat> know Rustin mentioned here earlier, Neil, and I'm sure in the other campuses, we're in a mini-series right now, a little three-week series that we do annually on our mission called Get God, Get Real, Get Out There. And this year we're looking at it through the lens of experiencing God and how if we get God and then get real and then get out there that we might just experience Him uh, in our lives. And so with that said, let's bow and pray and then we'll dive right into His Word. Father God, I thank you for the gathered church here and at our Cactus Campus at Northridge, at Chapel and certainly online. God, I thank you that you inhabit the praises of your people. And so as we have worshiped you and opened up our minds and, and softened our hearts before you, we know, Lord, that the road is paved for you now to tread more fully into our lives. And so, Father, I pray that as that has happened, that you would now speak to us through your word. <clears throat> Lord, help us to believe what you say so that we might more richly and deeply and profoundly experience you in our lives. That's the goal. We want to give honor and glory to you and all we say and do. And so, Lord, we want to move closer to that now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so when I was a young seeker back in high school, it was Joe who spent time with me and answered all my tough questions and eventually prayed with me to receive Jesus as my Lord and Savior. 
And shortly after that, I found a church and the pastor, a guy by the name of Ludd, his name was Ludwig Reinhold Goltz, a Canadian-German pastor, took me under his wing and he began to disciple me and teach me how to relate to God in highly profound and personal ways. And then I went off to college, and as I was coming into my own intellectually in my newfound faith, it was Tom and Carl, two Christian professors who took an interest in me and taught me to think critically as well as biblically about the world around me, and this greatly influenced my call into full-time Christian ministry and to be a pastor and a teacher of the Bible. Toward the tail end of college, you gotta love this one, it was my best friend Bill who told me to stop being so shy and ask out a girl named Kim, and I did, and two years later we were married and he was the best man in my wedding. It was his fault, so he figured I figured he should be there with me. Uh, Are you starting to see a a pattern in my life? I I could go on and on in my first pastorate in Detroit, it was a guy named Kevin whom God used to help me heal and gain pastoral confidence. God used Andrew to help me learn godly leadership. And then God used Kim and my young kids to help me learn not to be such a jerk in my godly leadership. And so over the last 13 years, as I've been here in Scottsdale, this is rich, God has used many of you to shape and form my soul into what it is today, as the Bible says, iron sharpening iron. Here's my point. When I audit the last 40 years of knowing God through Jesus, as well as the last 30 plus years of pastoral ministry, don't miss this, just about every major move of God in my life, from my conversion to my discipleship, to my calling, to my marriage, to my healing, to my pastoral leadership, to the very forming of my soul, has in some way or another involved others, other human beings. In other words, rarely, almost never, have I experienced God in a vacuum. He has consistently chosen to use others, others who know and follow him to move and act in my life. And if I don't miss my guess, you, you could tell of a similar journey. My guess is that you as well have a list, I hope you do, of a few good and godly people whom God has used to help you know and follow him. People God has used to to allow you to more deeply and meaningfully experience him. And if you haven't found this yet, hang on uh, to the ride, because if I don't miss my guess, based on what we're going to talk about today, I'm going to help you get on the road toward finding others that are going to help you experience God more fully in your life. Because here's the point. In fact, it's my only point today, one main point, and it's this, and that is that a primary way of experiencing God is through his people. Did you know that? A primary way of experiencing God is through his people. So as we continue our September series here at SBC, looking at how we can experience God in our lives, we come today to our stated church value called Get Real. And I've chosen to focus this year on how when you and I get real with those around us, as well as allow them to get real with us, God will use us to show up and do something in them and us to the point that we realize 
we're experiencing him. It's true. Now, in order to understand this point, I need to bring into focus a biblical phrase that many of us have probably heard before. It's a very poignant and powerful phrase, if there ever was one. It's the phrase, the body of Christ. The body of Christ. And I have taught on this before, about three years ago, to all of you, and then I also taught on it at our men's retreat this last spring. But it's worth teaching on at least every year. So let's review again, because it's that relevant for our lives today, especially if you want to experience God in your life. Look at what the Bible says in a couple of places that'll introduce or kind of get us into the shallow end and then the deeper end of this idea of the body of Christ. It says, for just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. So physical body, spiritual body. And then look at how Corinthians will say the same thing. 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 and 27. It says, for even as the body, your body, is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. So obviously, in both of these passages, it is saying that just as you and I don't miss this, have physical bodies with all kinds of different parts that play different roles, hands and feet and mouth and nose and all that. So the church, people who know and follow Jesus, is a body, Jesus Christ's body, and we form one unit with many different parts and roles. That's obviously what it's saying here. But what you need to wrestle with right now, we're gonna spend a few minutes doing this, is exactly what does the Bible mean when it says that you and me are the body of Jesus Christ? We get the tie-in that it's referring to our physical body and that there's now Christ's body, but what does it mean exactly when it says we are the body of Christ? What you need to know is that Bible experts have been wrestling with this for 2,000 years and they're still not completely in agreement. So, for instance, some argue that this is an analogy or a metaphor being talked about here. You know, the people of God are like a physical body. They represent God's body if he actually had one, but they aren't really God's body in any physical sense. It's just a word picture to get the point across. And that's what some argue, that this is a metaphor that we are like a body, God's body, if he were to actually have one. The only problem with this interpretation, watch this, is that in all the places that the New Testament talks about us being the body of Christ, it never does so in direct metaphoric language. In other words, it never actually says that you and I are like Christ's body. In fact, it says the opposite. It says you are Christ's body. And further, it's interesting, in one particular passage that talks about this idea of the body of Christ, Colossians 1, verse 18, when you look at the entire context of the passage, as it's talking about Jesus Christ, the whole thing is about Christ, it's talking about all these literal, non-allegorical, non-metaphysical things about Jesus, and then right in the middle of it, 
It throws in this idea of us being his body with no evident switching of gears at all to the metaphorical. Let me show you what I mean. This will be kind of fun, kind of like a word puzzle if you like word puzzles. Let's read the passage together. Uh, It's in verse 18 that we're going to dial into, but let's read the whole context and you'll catch on as to what I mean. It says, and he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. Now pause right there. I think all of us would agree that that is a literal statement. 2,000 years of theological inquiry have all agreed, orthodoxy has, that Jesus is God come in the flesh. He's the image of the invisible God, literally. So let's read on. The firstborn of all creation. Most would take that literally. In fact, everybody would. For by him all things were created, literally, he was the agent of creation, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by Jesus and for Jesus, literally. And he is before all things, he was preexistent, literally, and in him all things hold together, literally. Then we get to verse 18. And it says, he is also head of the body, the church. Now pause again there. Is that literal or non-literal? You kind of be the judge of that. Because it goes on to say, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Everybody takes that literally. So that he himself might come to have first place in everything. Literally. Go on to verse 19. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness of deity to dwell in him, literally, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven, literally. (laughs) Do you see? If this idea of Jesus' body is simply a word picture or a nice spiritual analogy, then I gotta tell you, the New Testament writers didn't go to a lot of trouble to make it clear. In fact, the opposite. It's found in a list of a lot of literally true things about Jesus here in Colossians 1. Literal, 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 literal. Non-literal? Literal, literal, literal. And then as we've seen in 1 Corinthians 12, 27, it says now you are Christ's body. Not like, but are. It doesn't seem to be a metaphor. In fact, it seems to be something much stronger and more real than what a metaphor would be. Now, hang on to that. Because others have said, well, okay, I get it. It's not a metaphor. So what it must be is some type of substitution thing going on here. You know, Jesus had a body when he was on this earth, but now that he's gone, we kind of replace it, so to speak. Like we do things in his stead, so we're not really his body, but we function as if we were. But again, I I know what they're trying to do here. They're they're, they're trying to say, you know, we're not really his body, but, but, but he uses us as if we were. We replace it, we substitute it. But again, nowhere in the Bible does it even come close to saying something like that. If you believe that, That's only an inference that you are making, adding to what the Bible clearly says. And so still others have thought, well, maybe it's some kind of mystical, spiritual thing going on here. Like we aren't really Christ's literal body, but he does work in and through us to the point that it feels like we are. Like he hovers in and around us. 
And though this is getting closer to what I think is going on here, that there is an actual presence of Jesus in his body, again, there's, there's no evidence in the scriptures that it's some mystical thing that we can't explain. I've studied this a lot over the years. The only spot where it even comes close to saying that is in Ephesians 5, verses 30 and 32, where it says that this idea of us being the body is a mystery. You're gonna laugh at this. The mystery is not that we can't understand it. The mystery in the context there is how a group of fallen, blemished, spiritual misfits like the Christian church can really function as the literal body of Jesus on earth. <laughs> in other words, how can a group of imperfect people function as the body of a perfect being? That's the mystery. No, folks, let's move on. It's not an analogy or a replacement or some type of mystical preference. presence. Here's what the Bible teaches. Jesus Christ came to this earth 2,000 years ago as a man, fully God and fully human. He died for our sins. He rose again. He ascended into heaven where he now reigns in power and majesty. And because he is not here anymore, in bodily form, we now the church, anyone who gathers in the name of Jesus are his body. We are his hands, his feet, even his mouthpiece, literally and truly, and he is the head, the brains, directing all that we do. We, you, are the body of Christ, and though I don't pretend to know everything about what this means and all the ins and outs of it, what I do know is that when I read the scriptures honestly, it seems to be something much more than a nice metaphor or replacement motif or mystical presence. And I'm not alone. John Ortberg, who wrote a book called God is Closer Than You Think, refers to what we're talking about here as the two incarnations of Jesus the two incarnations. The fact that Jesus became human the first time when he walked this earth bodily some 2,000 years ago, and he argues is now human again as he functions in and through his literal body, us, the church. Look at what he says. He says, God has incarnated himself again. He is present to us through people, a real estate agent, a bank teller, a next door neighbor, a homeless man. He says, when it comes to people, it is perhaps supremely true, God is closer than you think. Don't miss this, gang. You are the body of Christ, truly and actually so. And what this means is that a primary way of experiencing God now is through his people. You know, I've been uh, wrestling with Christians over this issue for years because some don't like it when I talk this honestly or openly about what I think the body of Christ really means, that it's literally true that we are his body. Uh, but what you need to know is, is that when you look closely at all the biblical players, they functioned as if this were true. They functioned as if one of the primary ways God was gonna meet them was through others. And so let me give you an illustration, an example of this right now, that, that if you know anything about the Bible, even if you don't, you'll get this. It, it, it's kind of fun. Uh, probably the most rugged, individualistic, tough-minded believer in all of the Bible is a guy named Paul, Paul the Apostle. Uh, Paul the Apostle, I mean, just you know, blinding light, a conversion to Jesus. And when you look at his life, he had every reason 
to be very individualistic. In other words, just him and God for the rest of his life. I mean, when it came to his spiritual gifts, have you ever counted how many gifts Paul had? He had the gift of healing, miracles, tongues, interpretation, words of knowledge, prophecy, and apostleship and teaching. And am I forgetting any? I mean, I've always argued that average Joes like you and me maybe have one or two spiritual gifts. This guy had like at least half of them. In addition, he got these direct revelations from God to the point that they were so real and true that he wrote 13 of the New Testament books. They're penned by Paul the Apostle as the very word of God. I mean, this guy was like a, a super spiritual giant. And then he had this special calling. But as you can imagine, life for him still wasn't easy. He struggled a lot and suffered greatly in his life. And he writes about that in his letters in the New Testament. In fact, my favorite uh, letter that he ever wrote is one that's probably not your favorite because you've never really read it closely, but you might want to at some point. It's the letter penned to the Corinthians called 2 Corinthians. It's the most honest letter Paul ever wrote. I'm going to show you why here in a second, but he just gets painstakingly honest about his sufferings and struggles, his depression, his despair in this letter. And he's writing to a group of spiritual misfits, if there ever were one. The Corinthian church was a mess. In fact, the letter is so honest that halfway through he even says, I know I'm kind of sounding crazy here. And you're like, yeah, you are. But he's that honest in this letter. Let me show you what I mean. I'm just show you a couple of verses here. He starts off the letter, just eight verses into chapter one. And he says, for we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction, which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life. Again, this is that spiritual giant we're talking about here. Half the New Testament gifts, direct revelations from God. And he was burdened excessively to the point where he says, I don't even have the strength anymore to deal with all of these problems. And he despaired even of life. Some of you can relate to that. I wouldn't say Paul was suicidal, but I would say that he was the step right before suicidal where he says, and some of you have been there, I don't want to live anymore. <laughs> this is so bad, this side of heaven. I don't want to stay in this place. I want to go to the next place. He was despairing of this life. You're saying, well, well, what was so wrong? Look what he'll write seven chapters later. He says, for even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest because we were afflicted on every side. And I love how he says this, conflicts without, fears within. <laughs> kind of covers the bases there, doesn't it? He's saying, on the outside, we have all these conflicts. Our flesh has no rest. People are all over us, and, and I'm getting persecuted. My friends are deserting me. I've lost my job. I don't know what tomorrow will bring. And then, hey, I got these internal dragons like fear and anger and other things that sort of rear their ugly head. And so between the outside stuff and the inside stuff, man, am I burdened beyond my strength. That's what Paul is saying in this letter here. And again, this might be more than some of you want to hear, because, but this is a great geography lesson. When he says in chapter one that this experience occurred to him in Asia, and then he says here it occurred in Macedonia, what you need to know is he's covering the entire breadth of his geographical ministry here, except for Rome. Because Paul started out in the, in the Holy Land, and then he went up through Syria into this huge landmass called Asia back then. We call it today Turkey. 
And, and so picture the nation Turkey. Paul went all throughout Turkey and he planted churches in Galatia and Ephesus and then the seven churches of Revelation. And then he's sitting there on the edge of the Aegean Sea in Eastern Turkey and, and he gets this dream of somebody across the sea saying, hey, come preach the gospel to us. So he travels across the sea into what he called Macedonia, which is modern day Greece. And he planted churches like Philippi and Thessalonica, Corinth, who he's writing to here. So he's saying, we were a mess in Asia, we're a mess in Macedonia, conflicts on the outside, fears within, and then one more passage just to show you what a mess this guy was. And he says, and apart from such external things, there's a daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. <laughs> you gotta laugh at this. I, I, I'm such a fan of this letter that sometimes when people ask me how I'm doing, I'll say what's kind of a tough week. I, I have conflicts on the outside, fears within, and on top of that, my concern for all the churches. How are you? <laughs> because that's the way some of my week goes. I, I mean, I'm just getting harassed on the outside. I got my own demons I'm dealing with. And on top of that, I'm all worried about Northridge and Cactus and Shea and, and everything else, and, and let alone everything else going on in America. See, some weeks are bad. Some lives are difficult. Paul the Apostle is saying that. So here's what I want you to wrestle with. What does a spiritual giant like this do then to deal with his stress? How, how, how does he ask God to, to help him? Some of you say, well, he needs to have a quiet time, right? I mean, he, he needs to get the daily bread and he needs to start reading it and he needs to spend time every day with God. The only problem is Paul was already doing that. Do we all understand that? Well, then he needs to go to a healing service, Jamie. I mean, he needs to just use a healer, pray to God to take this stuff away. The only problem is Paul already tried that. In fact, he'll write about that in chapter 12 where he says, three times I prayed to the Lord to take this away from me. And God said, no. Remember we talked about that last week? God says, no, yes, maybe. God didn't even say maybe or wait. God said, no. So what did Paul do? More importantly, what did God do to minister to Paul? Believe it or not, in this letter, he tells us and it bumps us right up against what we're looking at here today. Look at what Paul says. He says in chapter seven, verses six and seven, but God. So whatever's gonna come next is a result of God ministering to Paul. What did God do? But God, who comforts the depressed, because Paul was depressed, comforted us by the coming of Titus. I didn't see that one coming, how about you? By the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted in you, Corinthians, as he reported to us your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I, say this word with me, rejoiced even more. <laughs> so Paul went from despair and depression to rejoicing. How? I think he read Jamie's book, How Joyful People Think. What do you think? <laughs> no, he, did, he didn't read my book. My book was actually written on stuff that he said, but he didn't read the book. He went from de despair and depression by the coming of Titus and by what Titus said happened to him by being with this messed up church, the Corinthians. And it was through others that Paul experienced the presence of God so profoundly that he rejoiced. And what you need to know, folks, is that this is not a one-off. This is all over the Bible. Moses with his father-in-law, Jethro. 
Moses experienced God, actually experienced God's leading and God's voice through Jethro. David with Nathan, remember that story? We reviewed it this summer, Rustin and Kevin did, where David was actually confronted by God through Nathan. Peter with Andrew. Do you remember Andrew, one of the disciples? What do we know about Andrew? He was the guy that introduced people to Jesus. And he introduced Peter to Jesus. Peter would not have known Jesus without Andrew. And then Paul here with Titus. Here's the point. The Bible is strewn with scenarios where God chooses to do his best work, even reveal himself in and through others. It's a primary pathway he has chosen for you and me to experience him. And what you need to know, and we're going to wrap this up here in the next few minutes, but, but he wants you to experience this in your life today. He does. But it's not going to come unless you get real in the lives of others so that God might help you experience them or experience him through them and then drop your guard so that you might even allow others to experience God through you. Until you get real, it doesn't really happen. Until you roll up your sleeves and get involved with people, even just a few small group of fellow like-minded Christians, until you do that, you're never gonna experience God to the fullness that he wants you to. But when you do, look out, because spiritual sparks fly, and you start to experience God like you never thought you would. So, so how does this work? There's a ton of examples as to how this works. We, we've seen just one here in the community of faith with Paul. The coming of Titus comforted him and, and helped him realize that God is truly in the house and God ministered to him through Titus. Uh, but it works with evangelism. It works with hospitality. It works with discipleship. It works with community and mission. It works on all levels. I, I want to give you one example of how this works that has been probably the most profound to me and it involves a topic I introduced to you last week. We'll continue it on now this week and it's the topic of prayer. Prayer. So, so let me ask you as we just take about five to eight minutes to talk about this. Through a hand raise, Northridge Cactus Chapel, you watching at home, I want you to all participate in this. I want to ask you how many of you have ever in your life prayed for another person or group of people? Raise your hand if you have. Have you ever prayed? I, I thought that would be the case. Just about every one of you raised your hand. If you haven't, my goal is to get you to pray one time for another person between now and the time you die. Because here's what we realize about prayer. And that is that when we pray, God allows us, now don't miss this, to actually be the answer to the prayers that we prayed, and most Christians don't understand that. What do I mean by that? Once you understand body of Christ theology, which is why we took time to go through it earlier, once you understand that you literally and truly are the body of Jesus Christ, that you are his mouth, his hands, his feet, that you are his presence many times to others around you, then it alters the way that you and I think about prayer. I call it circular reasoning prayer. That what happens is, is that when you and I pray for someone or something, then what we realize is that what we're praying for just might involve you and I 
in answering that prayer. So here's how it works. Say we pray for someone's financial troubles or depression or relational struggles or even the temptations that they're experiencing in their lives. God, who hears our prayers, goes on to answer them in the other person's life because that's what he does. And yet in answering them, because you and I are the body, many times we are also the provision for their need. In other words, we are the ones to provide the money. We provide the comfort. We provide the counseling. We provide the encouragement and accountability during temptation. All in the name of Jesus, who is our head. Please see, it's circular reasoning prayer. We pray, God hears and receives our prayers, but then immediately turns the table. He throws them back on us by delegating to us the body to be responsible for, for answering the exact prayer we threw up to heaven. And yet could this be why some, if not many of our prayers go unanswered? Because we don't realize that the things we're praying about, God in heaven is saying, Rick, I want you to be the answer to that prayer. Carolyn, I want you to be the answer to that prayer. Or, or, or maybe, uh, you know, Richard here prays and, and now God says, I want you. Jim, to be the answer to that prayer. We don't realize that, and that's why many prayers go unanswered. It's exactly what the book of James is getting at in James 2, 15 and 16, when James says this. He says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed of the, for the body, what good is that? In other words, not to put too fine a point on it, he's saying that if you pray for poverty, you better be willing to be a part of the solution. He's essentially saying you're the answer to the prayer you're praying. You're the body, you're the hands and feet of God. You're the provision to the need that you're concerned about. So pray, yes, but you better be prepared to be the answer to that prayer. And again, it works in so many other areas as well. Anything that we pray about. Are you willing to be used by God to be the answer? You know, I, I learned early on in my pastoral ministry, <laughs> and I, I got just so many stories here, I, I didn't even know where to start this week because I was preparing for this. I, I, I learned early on in my pastoral ministry that if I dare pray about anything for anybody, I better be willing to be a part of the answer to that prayer because so many times God does want to use me. I told you this story, I think, before, but again, I have so many examples of how this was real for me, but I, I can remember when early on in my faith, I accepted Jesus. I've, I've shared this with you before. I struggled early on walking with Jesus, like some of you do. I mean, I was saved to be sure. I know I was, because it was very real when I accepted Jesus, but I struggled with alcohol. I, I struggled with peer pressure. I, I, I struggled with deep-seated insecurities, and it caused me to do a lot of rebelling early on as a Christian. And I knew I was saved because before I was saved, I didn't care. <laughs> I, I do bad things and I don't know, who cares? But now that I was saved, every time I did bad things as a young, you know, late in high school, as you know, a young man, uh, I feel guilty for it. And that was a new feeling for me. I didn't feel guilty before that. And, and so here I am doing these things that I know God doesn't want me to do and I feel guilty for it. But I, I, I was like one foot in, one foot out. I was a carnal Christian. I was a mess. And I had a lot of people praying for me. My Youth for Christ leader was praying for me. My high school friends who had accepted Christ were praying for me. My, my mom was praying for me. I mean, most people would say, we hope Jamie can eventually get his act together and you know, start to walk with God. And, uh, and they were praying for me. There was one guy who was praying for me. 
that, that also realized he could be a part of the answer. And he took a risk, a gamble that paid off. About a year and a half into my regular hypocrisy, he saw me at a party one night when I was in early college. And I was well on my way toward drinking and carousing and doing all the things that I did. And, 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 and he sat me down. And this guy, he's just like Paul the Apostle. He was very prophetic, very, very forward, very candid, very offensive. And, and he said to me, he said, when are you going to get your act together? <laughs> you're, you're, like, you're like going nowhere fast. God wakes up every day with you and wants you to walk with him. And all you do is walk the other way. You don't know what you're missing. I walk with God, he said, and I used to be a screw up like you, but I walk with God every day and my life is exciting and the journey is amazing. You get up and miss every opportunity you could with God. When are you gonna grow up and take your faith seriously? I was on my, like my third beer by then, so I was you know, well on my way toward where I wanted to go that night, but I can clearly remember, it's a true story, taking a beer out of this pocket, I had my hunting jacket on, a beer out of this pocket, and a beer out of this pocket, just emptied my pockets of beer, and I knew God was speaking to me. It was so real. I knew God had me. Nobody had ever been that candid with me. Everybody wanted to be loving, and kind and good, I appreciate that. But nobody called me to the carpet. This guy did. And because the Holy Spirit was in that, instead of being offended, I sobered up fast. It's a blur, because it was 40 years ago. But I remember going home that night after saying goodbye to my friend, and, and I brought out my Bible, I dusted it off, because I didn't read it much. And I opened it up at my kitchen table at two in the morning. And I remember reading half of the Gospel of Matthew, not understanding anything that it said. I was Bible stupid as the day was long. And then I went to the book of Philippians. I didn't understand anything it said. But I knew something was going on in my heart. I knew that God was in the house. And I closed the Bible. Actually, I think I left it open. And I breathed a prayer to God and I said, God, I'm done playing games. If you will have me, I will devote the rest of my life to pursuing you and serving you and I won't ever look back and I heard him say in my spirit that night welcome home son I'll have you but if my friend Bill it was Bill the same guy that made me ask out Kim if my friend Bill had not been used by God that night that whole thing wouldn't have started and by the way I've struggled since then in my spiritual life and you know what God did he provided another Bill, or another Carl, or another Tim. God has provided people every step of the way to help nudge me back on track. I could tell you story after story, but it's because there was something in me that was open to getting real with a few trusted people around me, and there was something in them that allowed them to get real back with me. And that's how it works. You can choose to spend the rest of your life sheltered from anyone and anything around you. You can, lots of people do it. But as the book of Jonah says that we looked at last June, you will forfeit the grace that could be yours. And you don't wanna do that. So going back to my opening list, I keep this on my phone, I'm, I have a list. Joe, Lud, Tom, Carl, Bill, Kevin, Andrew, Kim, my children, many of you are on that list. You are people 
who have gotten real with me. And because you had and have, God uses you and allows me to experience him through you. And all I can say is that I look back and I say, only God. And I gotta believe he's used me similarly because I'm in the game and I'm in the game with you. And I hope you're in it with me. Let's pray. Father, this might be new to some of us, to this idea that we can actually experience you on such a human level through others. But Lord, you've been doing it for thousands of years and it's how you function here on planet Earth. Surely, Lord, there is a spiritual side to our souls in which we can get alone with you and have prayer time and quiet time alone with you and you move and act there too. But then as soon as we come out of that closet, Lord, you've said, now get with my church, get with people because that's where I'm gonna do my best work. And so, Father, I pray that for any of us who have been a bit lax here, as I have over the years, that, God, we would take some risks, even this week, about getting real with those around us, opening up our lives, maybe even being a little bit prophetic at times, in love, so that we might start to help others see how good and loving and true and real you are, even through us. It's a miracle, it's a mystery that you do that, Lord. But we're grateful for your movement. We look forward to your movement in our lives and in our church. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.